G'day everybody and welcome back to the extras. My name is Sam. And I'm Jack. And it is good to be back, Jack. We are, uh, we're in a new series. We are, yeah. Book of Romans. Uh, this is fantastic. My third kind of Guernsey on the Book of Romans. And I, if you couldn't tell from Sunday, I'm just a little bit excited about this. Yeah, you've sort of, you know, waved the Romans flag. You, you feel like you've been the, uh, the, the head of this series for a long time while we've been doing it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's cool to be back into it. It really is. And, uh, and actually, to be honest, I, this is the part of Romans that even as we kicked off two years ago, I, I was so keen to get to. Mm. I, I feel like I've heard so many Romans series that, that, that do uh, Romans 1 to 8 and then kind of just sort of fall off the bandwagon at that point and never get into <laughs> the, 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 the gold that is there in Romans 9 to 11. So mm. this is uh, something I'm quite excited about and keen to be doing it with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I feel like the last few months you and I have tag teamed with other preachers as we've done the extras, but we're kind of back talking together about it. It's, Here uh, we it's are. a good thing. Yeah. yeah, and so we've got heaps of questions to tackle today. We, mm. we want to get into them pretty quickly, but just in case um, people haven't caught up on Sunday but are listening to this, welcome. Um, Jack, just give us a quick 30 second recap. Uh, what was Sunday all about? Sure thing. So, Romans 9, we're, we're kind of plunged from the heights of glory at the end of Romans 8. Nothing separates us from the love of God into the, the depths of despair at the start of 9 because Paul is just grieved that so many of the, the Jewish people have rejected Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the question mm-hmm. is, if God's faithful, if he keeps his promises, then why are so many of his Old Testament people not believing in Christ? Yeah. And Romans 9 to 11 is Paul's answer. So we started to see that the beginning of that answer is that God never promised that he would save all of Abraham's children. Uh, God chooses. God chooses his true spiritual people within that people. And yeah. we've been wrestling with all sorts of questions as we think about what it means that God is a God who chooses. Yep. Nice. Nice. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what we're going to tackle today. Lots of questions around God's choice. And we've also got this coming Sunday. Um, get, get keen. We're going to do a, a bit more of an in-depth dive into God's sovereignty and mm. some of the further issues around predestination. Uh, just to kind of follow up on, on um, both questions here and just generally get our, our heads into some biblical gear on this. So, so get excited for Sunday and we'll probably have some more questions to tackle this time next week. That's right. Some of the questions we came in last weekend, we're actually saving for Sunday. So if your question doesn't get answered in this podcast, please stay tuned because in the, the talk on Sunday, we're going to get to a couple other things too. That's awesome. Okay. Well, let's dive in. We've got a few that pick up on details in the passage and then we've got others that kind of get into the theology of this whole thing. So, mm. so let's get going. The first one here, Jack, is... Um, verse 17 talks about scripture speaking to Pharaoh. Yeah. Um, someone's texted in and said, hang on a minute, the scripture wasn't written when something was said to Pharaoh. So how does scripture actually speak to Pharaoh? Yeah, it's a good pickup. Uh, I think that there's something a little bit sort of roundabout in Paul's language here. He's, he's picking up in Exodus uh, chapter 9, I think that verse comes, God spoke to Pharaoh through Moses, and that's recorded for us in scripture. So I think you sort of see Paul looking back at Exodus and saying, yeah, look, look at what uh, it says to Scripture, sorry, what it says to Pharaoh in Scripture. So I think that's mm. kind of what he's saying there. So, you know, technically, yeah, Scripture wasn't there speaking, but yeah, it's interesting that Paul puts it that way. Yeah. I don't know if there's too much more in it than that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, hope that helps. Okay. One done. Plenty to go. Here we uh, go. Next question, Sam. When the Jewish Romans who read verse uh, 19, when they read verse 19, which talks about why does God still blame us? Who's going to resist his will? Uh is this meant to be a reminder or a, to point us towards Job when he asked a similar question? Mm. 
Um, I mean, I think it, a lot of what's going on in that section of Paul's argument does make you think of Job, doesn't it? Um, mm. The idea of, of sovereign events uh, occurring. There's a kind of a heavenly decision-making that Job's not fully aware of. Um, and then, actually, when you get to the end of Job, um, verse 20, which re- reads on there, Job, Job's answer from God when he pushes Job and says, why, 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 tell me? Um, God kind of puts him in his place with mm. a bit of a caution. You know, who are you to talk back to God, Job? You're just, were you there when I made the world? Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, so I think there is echoes of the book of Job. I don't think it's a direct quote from, from a, a part of Job, but certainly echoes. And, and we should expect that at one level, shouldn't we? Because mm. it's the same sovereign Lord who's been there from the very beginning. Uh, the same God who dealt with Job is the same God that dealt with Abraham, is the same God that deals with us. Um, and so we should expect some consistency, I think. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Yeah, as, like the direct quote comes from Isaiah 45. That's where you see God talking about the, the potter and the clay and that mm. imagery. But... There is a potter and clay imagery in Job, and it's it's a it's an image that gets run throughout a lot of the Old Testament. It's there in Jeremiah as well. So it's mm. this this long running theme that God is the Creator, so He does what He chooses to with His creation, and the creature stands there and has no right to speak back. So yeah, I think Job's certainly part of that that uh, set of ideas as well. Yeah, nice, nice. Okay, two down. Um, Question three here, Jack. Um, someone's noted um, in in Paul's little kind of you you called it on Sunday that a little summary of all of the Old Testament mm. in, in verses um, three to five. Yeah. Um, one of the the things that Paul notes that Israel, the nation of Israel, have had um, in verse four, he says that theirs is the adoption to sonship. Mm. Um, and someone's texted in and just said, "Hang on." Is an adoption to sonship a New Testament promise? How is it that Israel, or Paul thinks that Israel, have that? Yeah, great question. Um, is adoption a New Covenant promise? Uh, no, I mean, it is, but not exclusively. Uh, and, and, yeah, it's a really interesting thread to trace through. I mean, look, look a couple of verses. Back in Exodus again, like so much of this comes back to Exodus. Does, doesn't it? Exodus chapter 4, when God is kind of geeing Moses up to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh. Uh, Exodus 4 verse 22 this is what you'll say to Pharaoh this is what the Lord says Israel is my firstborn son and I told you let my son go so he may worship me Mm. and you see that God talking about uh, adoption basically Uh, in the way the Old Testament puts it the relationship of God to Israel is as a father and his firstborn son so you have this uh, kind of national corporate adoption if you like uh, adoption is a new covenant promise as well. You know, Romans 8 mm. is, is really big on that. Now that we have the spirit who, you know, uh, works within us, so we cry out, Abba, Father. There is this kind of progression of the idea of adoption in the Bible uh, so that in the New Testament, it's not just like a national corporate thing. We each individually are, are sons and daughters of God. But back in the Old Testament, yeah, you do have the adoption of sonship, but it's the, the whole nation is, is seen as Israel's firstborn son. Mm. Nice. Thanks, mate. Okay. We'll keep going. Yeah. Uh, next question. Moving, yeah, from the details, Romans 9, into thinking through some of the ideas here. Mm. Someone asked a question about love and hate. Now, they said, thanks for the interpretation of those words, love and hate, in this passage. Uh, we looked at verse 13, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. This person's asking, can we apply this same kind of lens to Psalm 5, verse 5, where mm. the psalmist says, God, you hate all evildoers? What a great question. And uh, what I really like about that question is the idea of kind of trying to read scripture in line with scripture, uh, mm. trying to see ideas and, and we want to make sure that we, we, we're viewing these things kind of um, holistically. So, so I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, great question. Yeah. Um, Psalm 5, um, yeah, as, as you quoted here, picks up on it. It, it. Not only does it 
uh, talk about kind of God hating all who do wrong. It also has some of the other ideas of Romans 9 rolling through it in, in particular, um, that the mercy that God shows um, and uh, kind of his, his justice upon sinners and, and kind of a, a, an exhortation down in verse 10 to declare the wicked to be guilty. Um, the psalmist here really, I think it's David, really wants God's justice to be, to be wrought upon the world. Mm. Um, and uh, so he's, he's thinking about similar ideas, I think, yeah. to Romans 9. So I think in one level, the short answer is yes, I think we, we can, because, uh, again, what were we saying on Sunday about love and hate, that, um, that they were less driven by emotion and more driven out of action. Mm. And I think um, part of what what action David is is begging God to, to bring is his justice and punishment um, to, to kind of right the wrongs and, and bring to justice the wicked. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think there's definite crossover there. Um, I think it's also worth saying, though, that that's not completely dispassionate. So I, I did make the point on Sunday that it's not driven by emotion, but I don't mm. think it means that God... God f- never feels anything or, or is dispassionate in all this and is, is quite clinical in the way that he does things. He, he, mm. Yeah, there is, there is heart here in the Lord, but yeah. I don't, do you have anything you want to sort of chuck in on that? Yeah, like the word, I mean, dispassionate is an interesting phrase. So I think one of the ways that theologians talk about this is making a distinction between the idea of passions and the idea of affections, mm. which might sound like pretty old school language, and it is, but I think it's quite helpful. Um, so... In the way that people, like the idea of emotions is a pretty modern concept. Yeah, like is, going back a few hundred years, people would talk about affections and passions. And mm. uh, passions are kind of the feelings that we have that are like really reactive. So, you know, someone, you know, you stub your toe and then you kind of, you flare up with, you know, frustration. It's, it's a very reactive thing. You know, you, yes. you're, you're kind of tossed around, like you're, you're feeling, you know, you might flare, flare up in anger when someone annoys you. Um, that's kind of passions, whereas affections are this, this much kind of deeper, like uh, more kind of driven by our, our deep longings. Like we talk about, you know, uh, you know the affections that, that God has for, for his people. Like he, he loves people. Like it's not mm. like God doesn't feel anything. He has this, this love, but it's not like a reactive. God's yeah. just kind of, oh, spare of the moment. Oh, something made me kind of swell with love for you. you know, God's love is this like constant, um, forceful like willed thing uh, but it's not a reactive thing so mm. i think god's hate yeah it's not it's not uh, a passion as in it's not like reactive like god's something like oh like i can't believe esau did that like i'm really kind of <laughs> suddenly angry it's yeah god's uh hatred is this uh yeah like you said it's not heartless it's 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 heartful but it's it's kind of uh, consistent and mm. it's strong and it's it's willed. It's like a very deliberate thing that God has chosen to do. Yes. It's not for that. I mean, we hear that and it kind of does sound a little clinical. Yeah. But that's just because we're so caught up in our own emotions that are so volatile. Yeah. I think. And, and that's right. So the volatility idea mm. is helpful, but it's, it's almost like God is determined to bring justice, which is yeah. what the Psalm's all about. And as such, that means he cannot tolerate and he will not tolerate those who, who do evil. And so in that sense, he hates them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. All right, that's helpful. All right, let's keep pushing along into these sort of broader kind of theological um, issues. Um, someone's asked a question about mystery um, mm. and that uh, they're appreciating that in some areas of theology we can understand what God has revealed to us. In other areas we, we, we recognise there remains some mystery and their question is, is uh, how do we locate the areas that remain mysteries? How do I know, okay, that's as much as I'm going to know? <laughs> mm, yeah, it's a great question. And, and I, I resonate with it as well, because I think sometimes you think, oh, like, 
maybe the question behind the question is, is it worth me kind of trying? If I know that there's no answer at the bottom of this, can I just mm. kind of give up now? Like, I think I've felt that kind of thing in the past. Yes. Yeah. Like, I think one thing to say is, like, we should expect there to be questions that we don't have an answer to in our current age, you know, finite, fallen as we are. Like, God tells us to expect that. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is important. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So, yeah, we expect that there are things that God hasn't told us about himself. And again, I mean, coming back to Romans 9, God is well within his rights to do that. You know, we don't have the right to demand that God tell us everything we want to know. God is well within his rights to choose what he reveals. Mm. And he's told us that he hasn't told us anything. I mean, and that in itself is kind of good to know. Like, it's good that God has told us that there, there's limits to what we know. That's helpful. Yep. Um, so how do you work it out? I think the short answer is you read the Bible and you read the Bible a lot and you, you keep digging and you keep striving mm. to know because God has revealed so much about himself. Like, yes, there are things he hasn't said, but what he, like, what he has revealed, that, that belongs to us and there's heaps of it. Like mm. the Bible's got stacks in there and there's, there's heaps for us to, to keep digging into. And uh, as you kind of wrestle with God and, and hear what he's saying about himself, as you do that, you know, and you go on and on, just continuing to read more and more. And then eventually you make it to the point where you say, well, yep, I can see that the Bible makes this really clear statement that God is the one who chooses. And he also talks about how people's choices really matter. And both those things have to be true because the Bible says them so often. And I don't really understand how it fits. So at that point you say, okay, I think I've arrived at the mystery. Um, mm. But that takes a lot of work, I think, to, to keep going. Like, don't you don't want to short circuit that. You don't want to give up too quickly and That's say, well, right. this is just, I'll put it in the two hard bars. Okay, this must be a mystery. Yeah. And I think it's it's worth noting here, Jack. I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of doing that. Like, mm. I, I know I've had conversations with people when you mention something like something else that has some mystery in it, like the Trinity, for yeah. example. They think, oh, I'll never understand that. I won't even bother mm. starting to think because if super smart guy over there can't work it out, <laughs> then what hope do I have, right? Yeah. Um, that, that I think can be a bit of an unhelpful kind of place to find yourself and maybe you're feeling that i just want to just gently challenge you if you're sitting listening today thinking well you know jack and sam can't come to kind of some <laughs> like and we're not all that smart um but you may well be well beyond us <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, yeah. right, that's right um don't don't take that attitude i think uh, yeah. which is to say search the scriptures um try and wrestle with god to try and understand well what has he told me and i want to be clear on what has been revealed mm. and then at the points where revelation kind of finishes kind of be willing to sort of go that far and say well i can say what scripture says um, yeah but don't don't fail to search the scripture just because there are challenging things here yeah and i think part of the difference that that makes is like us knowing god is a relational thing like god has not just revealed this abstract set of propositions to us like mm. what he has revealed is himself and and we come to know god as we think about who he is and so yeah i mean as you get to know more and more like you get to the point where actually i can't put all this together in my head but that itself is a wonderful thing to arrive at and realize god is you know, I knew at the start God was big, but now he's even bigger than I could have imagined. And that just kind of yeah. makes my awe before him just soar. And totally. that's a really good thing. That's awesome. Yeah. So keep going. Keep digging. I think that's the, the advice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right. All right. Next question coming on. Someone has asked, I mean, simple question in a way, but it's a big one. Is God unjust? I mean, that's the question that hmm. Paul raised in this passage and deals with in one way. But let's dig into it more. Uh, this person like, kind of clarifies, is justice getting what we deserve? And if Jesus gets what we deserve, is that unjust? Yeah, um, really helpful because I think it's it, it's um, it's poking at something like that's that's right in that we don't get what we deserve from God, mm. um, and that's that's I mean inherent in the idea of mercy, isn't it? Um, yeah. Getting not not getting what you deserve and getting grace and getting forgiveness. Um, so so they're, they're certainly um, scratching at something. 
think, very real and, totally. and, and yeah. biblical at that point. Um, but to, to sort of then conclude that God must be unjust in order to do that, I think mm. perhaps doesn't quite grasp how, what's really happened when Christ died on the cross and, and when... Um, and it really pushes us back, I think, to, to Paul's argument around what he calls justification earlier yeah. in the letter. And so, um, I, I mean, again, jump on our website. You can go to the, the first Romans series on our website. It's just stpaulsanglican.org.au slash Romans, and you'll get the first um, Romans series. And just perhaps re-listen to the Romans chapter 3 sermon if you want to mm. dig into this in some kind of detail. Um, but the short kind of version is... Um, it's worth kind of reflecting, I think, on Romans 3, verse 26, uh, which talks about how God, or 3.25 says that he's, you know, um, 21 to 25, you kind of want to get right <laughs> into good, that, you know, um, you know, that God, 25, uh, presents Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement and, uh, you know, our sin goes on to Jesus and he atones for our sin and we get his righteousness, it's all. Uh, and then 26 has this little line, he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so Paul's conclusion is not that this is an unjust thing, but this is actually God's justice at its finest. Mm. And you start thinking, well, hang on a minute, how's that fair? He's put sin onto the innocent and he's put, uh, he's let the wicked go free. That feels kind of unjust. Um, and I think there are two key concepts that you need to get your head around. One is the idea of, of, of union with Christ, um, that we are not sort of separate from Jesus uh, when we trust him, but but faith actually unites us to him so closely that effectively what Jesus deserves we get because mm. we're, we're so hooked into him that we almost are him, but we're not. But we're united to him by faith. Yeah. Uh, so it's not in that sense, we're not separate. We're not some other thing. We're united to him by faith. Um, the second thing is, is um, the idea of substitution, um, that actually Christ. Christ really does take upon himself kind of like the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament who's, who has the sins of Israel placed upon its head. Christ really does take his sin upon us and so pay for it. And we really do take his righteousness so that we really are um, counted righteous by God. Um, mm. it, it's a genuine sort of, he takes what we deserve and we, we get what he deserved because we really are so connected to yeah. each other in that sense yeah um, yeah so those two ideas i think are pretty important but do you, do you want to add something jack i mean only to try and yeah summarize that bring it together i think yeah i think that i mean romans 4 verse 5 i think it's really striking like god justifies the ungodly mm. is the way that paul puts it there and i mean that sound like sometimes the charge that's leveled against it is is is, is justification just a legal fiction as in mm. here's an ungod ungodly person and god's just saying yep this person's righteous and just decides to say that i mean if that's not true then like it's a lie and God's mm. just kind of, you know, saying yep. something that's not true. Like it's just a, something he's made up. But what you said is so helpful. Like union with Christ, like we are just, we are with Jesus so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. So that's we right. are righteous because we're in him. Yep. That's just crucial, yep. yeah. And, and I think one other thing I'd say is slightly slightly separate kind of line of, of argumentation on that is that I think if Jesus were a genuine third party to God, just mm. just a human, a righteous human, and God punished him, that would be unjust. Um, but because Jesus is God himself, it's actually not God punishing some external third party in a, in a perversion of justice. It's God uh, kind of absorbing the wrath in himself within the Godhead um, mm. and so actually taking our punishment on himself um, rather than some sort of 
you know, uh, again, one of the charges that gets levelled at, at this is kind of cosmic child abuse, that yeah. some poor, disconnected kid just cops the sin of the world. But that would, uh, that would be true if you didn't kind of believe that Jesus really were God in the flesh. Yeah. So incarnation matters so much because he's God, so it's just, and he's us, so he can die. So yeah, you know, all yeah. these things connect, right? Go back and read, listen to Romans 3. Theology is awesome. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, let, let's keep going um, on to another question here, Jack. Um, someone's uh, just picking up the line of thought about uh, people born into Christian families not guaranteed to be Christians. Mm. And, and someones uh, It's a long question, but I'll give you the short version of it. Um, this person says, I do accept that each individual's salvation is up to God and not connected to their background or family. But then how do you link that to verses like Acts 16, where Paul tells the jailer, believe in the Lord and you and your whole household will be saved, or, mm. or um, God's word to Noah, you know, go into the boat with all your family. There seems to be this thread of, of family salvation in those passages and in a couple of other places, I think you could argue. Mm. Um, but then you made the comments on Sunday that, you know, we do need to recognise that there's always a, a true spiritual people and it's not guaranteed by family lineage. So how do we, yeah. how do we reconcile all of that? I love this question. It's such an insightful question. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think it's important to note, like, yes, you do see this this family sort of shape to God's promises throughout the whole Bible. And this question picks up a few examples. I mean, you see, I mean, we talked about, you know, Isaac and Ishmael on Sunday. Uh, you see there how God chooses individuals within the people, but he also has this this kind of posture of being the God who makes the covenant with the people and that the family are kind of included. Like, it's, it's fascinating that uh, Genesis 17, God cuts his covenant with Abraham and uh, kind of promises to be his God and says to Abraham, you know, you're going to be my people, so you've got to get circumcised. And Ishmael is one of the people who's circumcised, you know, as part of the, the family of Abraham. He's, he's kind of swept up in the covenant people, if you like, even though he ends up kind of departing and being outside the people by the time he grows up. You see all through the... Yeah, you see God is, is committed to, to working with families. Uh, Acts 2, I think, is another important place. Uh, Peter gets up on Pentecost and talks about how Jesus is the risen Lord. And then he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. You receive the Spirit. Uh, the promise is for you and your children mm. and for all who are far off. And you see there, there is this posture that God has that, yeah, uh, there's, the, there's a family shape to how he calls people to be a part of his community. I mean, as an aside, this is why we believe in baptizing children. They're part of the family of God and the household of God, and we uh, you know, long to see them grow up to express the faith for themselves, but they're, they're part of the covenant community. What does that have to do with Romans 9 then, uh, which seems to show that there's not this guarantee that God saves uh, the children of believers? I think that the way to put it is like this. Romans 9 means that it's not a guarantee that mm. the children of Christian parents will be Christians, but it doesn't mean there's no connection at all, if you mm. like. So it's not ruling out any kind of possibility that God would have this sort of family shape to the way he saves people, because the rest of the Bible, I think, shows us that. But you can't take that as an automatic thing. It's not like, well, yeah, God saves families, so if I'm a Christian, my kid will be a Christian, so I'm going to sit back and it doesn't matter if I never pray with them, I never read the Bible with them, they're going to be a Christian. Like Romans 9 is saying, no, it, it doesn't. And I, I was trying to be careful to use the language on Sunday. It doesn't ultimately depend on ancestry because the mm -hmm. ultimate thing that depends on is God's sovereign choice. But that doesn't mean it's got nothing to do with family as well. Yeah, that, that's helpful. And I mean, there are plenty of verses, you know, like um, Proverbs says, train a, train a child in the way that they will go and they, they won't veer from that path, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, and I think there's, there's a truth in that. There's a proverbial observation that that is often how things go. But in terms of ultimate causality, yeah, um, yeah it's God's sovereign choice. But in terms of our responsibility, I want to 
raise my kids to know and love Jesus in, with everything that I've got and, you know, work hard at that, at that um, discipling of my kids, um, but recognising that it ultimately depends on God. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you. Okay, let's keep going. Um, so we're coming to... Uh, let's keep going, why don't we? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's have a look over this. Okay, uh, this is a longer one. I'll read a chunk of this. Someone says, It's been a realisation to me that every single person has either been chosen by God or condemned by God. It's not just that God chooses his children and leaves others to their own decisions, but God actively chooses his children and actively condemns the other. And this person, having had that, that's a big realization, isn't it? And so there's a bunch of questions that come out of that. Um, If that's true, isn't every sin planned by God? Has God predestined us to fall and sin? Do humans really have free will or does God predestine everything we do? Yeah, big questions there, Sam. What do you want to pick up on there? I want to say come along on Sunday, um, <laughs> yeah. because it, really this is one of the things that we're going to be kind of um, centering our, our our talk on on Sunday. Um, so maybe this can just be the introduction to the sermon. This this uh, this question. You just read this out, Jack. Nice, uh, <laughs> love it. Um, Sam is coming up with another intro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, look, God is totally sovereign, and um, and and I want to kind of. There's so much in this question that I want to affirm. Mm. Um, and uh, he really has, and we're going to try and show this on Sunday, God really has planned out every part of human history and, and nothing happens without his sovereign control. The question then becomes, well, does that make God responsible for sin? Uh, and that's going to be one of the questions we're exploring on Sunday. And I think the short answer here is it, it, God, I think, in a, in a biblical worldview, does have, have control and sovereignty even over uh, sinful human decisions and actions. Um, and, and at one level, if, uh, would you want to worship a God who, who doesn't have control over sin? Because if something mm. bad is happening, at what point do we have to say, well, God can't do anything. He's not in control of that. So don't bother praying about a disaster. Don't bother praying for someone who's going through something really hard because God's not in control of the evil. And so therefore, you might as well not bother him with it. You know? yeah. um, and, and so I think we have to say, no, no, God remains even in control, even over sin, uh, which raises some big questions. And we'll talk about this on Sunday. Mm. Um, but I think the way that the Bible lays it out is, is while he, he stands behind all things, I think he, he, in his sovereign power, he stands behind sin in a way that I think I, I, I'd use the word he stands behind it asymmetrically to how he stands behind something good. Asymmetrically. Okay. Asymmetrically, not, not in the same way, mm. slightly different, uh, such that there's always another entity that is morally culpable for that sin. Um, and we're mm. going to show a couple of examples of that um, on Sunday. And so I kind of don't want to steal all the thunder from Sunday, just kind of keep you hanging a, a yeah. little bit. But uh, this is a, 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 one of those areas where we're trying to tread tread the line that scripture treads which is to say god is in control of all things that that even calam- like um uh, lamentations 3 says you know both good and calamity come mm. from the hand of the lord um and yet when something calamitous happens uh, god god always stands behind it in such a way that he can show that another entity is ultimately is is morally culpable for that will and he justly punishes them for that now that's really hard to get your head around isn't it (laughs) it is Um, yeah but that i think is what the scripture teaches Um, and we're going to try and uh, you know i don't want to spend 30 minutes now doing that because that's what we want to do on sunday we'll get that yeah yeah yeah. I can have one thing. I think um, a verse that I've always found helpful for, I guess, anchoring this at a point in, in Scripture is, is thinking about thinking about the first sin, thinking about the fall, Adam mm. and Eve. Did God predestine that that would happen? 
Uh, one of the verses itself, well, Revelation 13, verse 8, talks about how Jesus is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Yeah. And that is a really interesting phrase. I mean, at one level, Jesus was not slain at the foundation of the world because he died, you know, 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So that happened in time. And yet, the way, the way it's put here, it's, uh, I think the implication is that God's plan always was that Jesus would be slain from before the foundation of the world. So even before, cre- before Adam and Eve actually existed, God yeah. had already decided that the Lord Jesus would be slain. Mm. And how could that happen unless human sin was part of the plan? Mm. The fact that, God, uh, that, that Jesus is slain before any of it happened shows you that sin wasn't a kind of a random thing that just happened, you know, it was, you know, therefore Jesus on the cross is plan B. No, like the cross is plan A, which means that sin has to be part of the plan. Yeah. So at that level, God has human sin as part of his plan doesn't mean he's responsible for it morally what well, doesn't mean yeah that's that's the question you've articulated for it but i think that's a verse that really helps me kind of yeah that's the you know that's the, the line in the sand i have to draw yes like sin's part of the plan how it's part of the plan that's a harder question yeah and we'll start yeah. coming to that later on yeah look forward to sunday yeah that's all right, right. Let, let's keep moving along here um uh, does God's choice, and this kind of actually plays right off what you've just been talking about here, mm. does God's choice come before or after human sinfulness? So the examples of Jacob and Esau and the potter suggest that it comes before, i.e. he chooses before they've done anything. Uh, but some of the language tonight suggested that human sin came first and God then chose to have mercy on some, which is it? Yeah, this is a really perceptive question. I'm going to start with an annoying answer in that in some ways it's before, in some ways it's after. <laughs> um, so let me get into that. So, I mean, Romans 9, 11 makes it clear that it's before, isn't it? Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand. That's when God made his choice. So before Esau ever sinned, God had chosen to hate him. So, yes, God chooses before human sinfulness. That's the kind of in time, like human version. God's choice happened in eternity. We sin, you know, in time. Before any of us ever does anything good or bad, God's choice has happened. It's in the past in that sense. But I think it's really important to think a bit about the way that God's choice works out, you know, in eternity, and the way that he has kind of made the choice he's made. Um, there's two options in a sense. Did God decide just arbitrarily, you know, way before the world was made, God's kind of sitting there, all right, I'm going to make people, I'm just going to put them in two camps randomly, like, you know, column A over here, column B, and then down the track it turns out they're going to sin and I'll save column A, not column B. If that's the way God's choice made, it ends up sounding pretty arbitrary, almost kind of, you know, random, but, you know, there's just these symmetrical options, either you're kind of, you know, one or the other, and there's, there's something that ends up being quite, yeah, arbitrary in God's choice. The alternative is to kind of think of it as God had already decided that, yeah, human sin would happen, and so he's already planned for the lamb slain before the foundation of the world to come. And out of us foreseen as sinful, God decides to save some. And that might sound like quite a subtle distinction, but I think it's important, because I think the Bible puts it like we're not just kind of a blank slate, and God chooses some to be one thing and some to be the other. I think the Bible pictures us as as fallen sinful people, God chooses some of them to be saved. So it's like the default is we are sinners. It's not like the default is blank. The default is we're sinners. And out of us all as sinners, God chooses some to be saved. So in that sense, God's choice comes after human sinfulness. But that's sort of thinking about God's eternal decrees and what he's ordained, Mm. whereas in time, God's chosen before we ever sin. 
Does that help at all? That's <laughs> it does. Yeah, it's but a little convoluted, isn't it? Yeah. It, 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 these are really tricky things um, to, to get our heads around, um, and and it's okay if, as you're sort of listening to all this, you're sort of feeling a little bit like, "Whoa, I'm reeling." Um, <laughs> feel free to just kind of skip back thirty seconds and just listen to Jack a few times. There, I, I think that's actually a really helpful way uh, to kind of process that, and it is a subtle distinction, um, but worth chewing on and yeah um yeah considering it a bit more yeah if you want to chase it down further uh, look up you know if you've got a, a bible dictionary uh, look up infralapsarianism that's <laughs> that'll that'll you know chew on that that'll that'll help you through it if, if that sounds like you didn't even understand that you know that just sounded like a little kind of you know oh there was a bit of distortion in the recording there or something <laughs> i don't know what that word was then don't worry but if you want to chew on it more infralapsarianism is yeah. what you want to look up okay let, let's keep moving along here. Um, uh, actually, to me, this, hasn't, this, yeah. is your, this is your question. Let's yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, go for it. In the Bible, it appears that God hardens hearts and people harden their own hearts. And this mm. person cites a couple of verses there. Are both yep. true or are they mutually exclusive? Yeah. Uh, in the two verses mentioned, they say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by both God and himself. Mm. This person says, this doesn't make sense to me. And that's hmm. probably fair enough, yeah. Sam, what would you say? Yeah, great. I mean, e- e- Exodus is, run, as we've already mentioned, running right throughout this passage. Um, and uh, Pharaoh is, is a really good example for the fact that, um, like my, my first answer is, it is hardened by both God and himself. Mm. Um, and, and scripture in Exodus says both. Um, where does it first begin? It begins at chapter 4, 21. verse 21, where God is kind of laying out for Moses the game plan. He's like, this is how it's all going to go down, Moses. Let me tell you um, what's going to happen. And he says in 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Mm. And you sort of start to think, well, hang on a minute. Surely God just wants to get the people out of there, but God's actually got a bigger thing. He's not just getting the people out of Egypt. He actually wants to display his power, and that's yeah. what Exodus is all about. Um, and so he promises that he'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh hangs on, and God will have to do increasingly bigger and badder miracles, kind of more and more severe, to just, and, and that'll be an opportunity for God to show off his power. Um, so then 421, that, that, that's the, the, the pre-game plan. Then you go to Exodus 7, verse 13, um, and, and you get it here at just a general passive. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, mm. and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. So it's not really um, ascribed to anybody in particular there. It, is, it notes that God promised that this is how it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, but then in 815, uh, fast forward another uh, chapter, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, and this was from the plague of the frogs, um, he hardened his heart yeah. and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. And here we're starting to see that both of those things can be true. That in the one event, the one moment, there are actually two wills being exerted. Mm. There's God's will, which is to harden Pharaoh's heart such that he has an opportunity to display his glory. But there's also Pharaoh's real and and and, and genuine will that he wants to hang on to these slaves and have them build more store cities for him he doesn't want to let them go yeah um and he is doing what he wills and god is doing what he wills and pharaoh wills for evil and god wills for good uh, in the one event there are two wills and they both result in both of them getting exactly what they want which is that pharaoh's heart remains heart <laughs> uh, and israel are not let go yeah so it's not like pharaoh's there actually pharaoh himself is really like pro-Israel liberation and wanted to let them go. But and he then, just couldn't. <laughs> yeah, and the mean old God came in and hardened up. No, no. Like you see both those things. God 
yeah. hardened and Pharaoh hard, hardens himself. Like, yeah, that's both it. Those things are true. And we are going to get in. This is again a big theme of Sunday's talk. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. All right. Uh, we're almost towards the end here. Good on. If you're still hanging in there at this point, shout out to you. Well played, and uh, you're doing great. Um, let's go down to a couple of application questions, Jack. Yeah. Um, verse 20. Someone's resonated with uh, with, with the comment in, uh, in Romans 9, verse 20, where um, the, 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 the piece of pottery cries back to the potter and says, why did you make me like this? Mm. Um, they're resonating in, in the sense of that they sometimes they feel more more condemnation than comfort from the gospel and they're asking can god even relate to this feeling of being worthless yeah and if this is your question then my heart goes out to you like there's there's very real pain here and to start with i want to encourage you to to keep going to the the wonderful truths of the gospel that these these truths about god's sovereignty are part of the picture but god also makes clear that he that jesus came and he he identifies with us in our weakness jesus came as one of us he, he knows what it's like to 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 be a weak and frail human and, and jesus certainly relates to that mm. uh, the gospel tells us that uh, god has loved us and, and sent jesus for us even while we were enemies god shows his love for us uh, all those things are true so the gospel is profound comfort to sinners and to people who feel worthless so let me encourage you to keep going back to those parts of the bible that, that scream out loud and clear for us yeah Let's think about uh, why did you make me like this, though? Because I think it is important to dig into what that verse is getting at. Um, I think if you hear that and, and think, oh, you know, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I am, I feel like all the time I'm, I'm weak. You know, I keep struggling with that sin. Like, God, why did you make me like this? Why did you make me so that I'm someone who, who is a battler and just never gets it right? I, if that's what you think when you hear that verse, I, I'd encourage you to kind of try and put that to one side because i don't think that's quite paul's point i don't think mm. paul's saying oh you know yeah I'm, I'm a you know god's made us like a struggler why did god make me like that doesn't seem fair the, the the why did you make me like this is within the context of this little illustration of the the, the pot talking about back, back to the potter and particularly the the pot that's been formed for uh you know for the non-noble option uh saying god why did you make me like this like the point is that that the, the one who's been chosen for the you know the the objects of destruction the the vessels for dishonorable use uh what right do they have to talk back to god saying mm. why did you make me like this so it's not kind of talking to you as a as a struggler it's, it's talking just in the context of that little uh, mm. illustration we yeah. don't have the right to stand back and talk to the creator that's kind of what it's getting at so it's not like god why do i always lose my temper mm. god why have you made me like this or yeah. why do i always struggle with the same sin why have you made me that's not the question the question is here is it like because it's in the context of is it fair for God to punish people by His decree? Mm. Um, and and in that point, it's it's a check and saying actually we don't get to question God on that. Um, we can't say why you know, if we're one of the ones being sent to destruction because God has chosen that. It's it's cautioning us on on talking back to God at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, helpful. Good okay. to clarify that. Yeah, yeah. We got one to finish, so we're mm. going to bring it home here. This person's looking back at. Paul's sorrow and unceasing anguish at the start of chapter 9. Yeah. Uh, should we replicate Paul's desire and wish ourselves cut off for the sake of the salvation of others? Mm. And this, I mean, this question came in a few ways. So someone else has added, shouldn't we value our place in heaven over everything else? Is it right to want to give that mm. up for someone else? Yeah. Yep. Um, really insightful question. Um, I think 
A couple of things to say on it. Um, the first one is to recognise, I think Paul is not talking in reality here. I think he, mm. he's expressing something of a heart, and I, don't, I think he, he recognises this is not actually possible. Yeah. Um, so he, he says, for I could wish that my, I myself were cursed. Um, mm. And so it's an expression of, I really want them to have what I have, yeah. is, is what he's expressing here. Which I think means, the, the question that says, um, shouldn't we value our place in heaven over everything else? I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. He realises... Mm just how precious it is to be saved and he wishes that everybody else shared that with him yeah um, so it's a it's a, at one level it's a piece of rhetoric to mm. kind of express man i wish that everybody had what i had um the second thing i think to say is that paul's not the first person to think like this Indeed. Um, so actually go back to exodus which is all through through romans chapter 9 is it exodus uh, chapter 33 and uh at this point israel have just sinned by uh, worshipping the golden calf, which is a really poor play on their part. Um, and God is yeah. angry at them. And Moses tries to go and, and actually kind of intercede on their behalf. And he says, God, cut me off and then um, have mercy on them. And, and God actually says, look, that's that's not actually possible because one human can't stand in the place of another. Well, apart from the God-man, <laughs> yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. You know, go back to Romans chapter 3 and see how, how that happens. Um, mm. But so I think it's, it's not actually actually a possibility that one could substitute their place for another unless you are the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so, uh, yeah, what, but what I think Paul shows us is just how we, we cannot be callously indifferent to the plight of others who are currently rejecting Jesus. Yeah. And, and I think for us as Christians, as we look around, you know, to the beautiful city of Sydney, um, you know, there are, you know, somewhere in the order of 10 million people um, in, in Greater Sydney, uh, who the vast majority of whom do not know Jesus. And, mm. and I think our heart needs to be like Paul's and to think, I could wish that they were in and, you know, um, I want them to come and join me in, in salvation. And I think sometimes we're a little bit indifferent to the plight of our friends, um, and not just our friends, our, our, our community, in, in a way that we could learn something from Paul here. I yeah, think. I think that there's something analogous in our, you know, look at what Paul was willing to give up for the mm. salvation of his brethren in a sense, like, you know, his place in the lifeboat. Like, what should, what could, what should we not be willing to give up that other people be saved? Like, Paul, yeah. Paul's willing to go to hell so that other people could be saved. You know, am I willing to go across the street and, you know, That's right. share the gospel with someone, you know, even yeah. though that might cost me some reputation or it might, yeah. you know, there might be some you know, an insult that comes my way or, you know, a relationship might be lost. Like, yeah. what are we... You know, what are we holding on to? What, what would we not be willing to, to, to lose so that people could hear the gospel and be saved? Yeah, and maybe some practical things like, like am I not willing to lose my money? Um, mm. Am I not willing to lose my dignity? Um, am I not willing to lose some time? Um, because, you know, Paul is, at one level, he, he's expressing this sense, I'd give up everything if it, if it meant they could come in. Mm. And we're sort of thinking, well, I'm not even sure I've got, you know, um, an hour and a half on Sunday night to go to church. <laughs> yeah, so that's a challenge to us, yeah. yeah. What are you willing to give up so that other people will be able to join us in the lifeboat? That's it. That's yeah. it. That's actually not a bad place to leave it, mm. um, I, I think, for today. Uh, we we recognise there are a couple of questions that we haven't answered and you might be thinking, man, I didn't get to mine. Um, that's because we're actually going to like kind of highlight yours in the sermon on mm. Sunday. Um, so well done you. You know, you've, you've asked a, a question we're, we're hanging on to because we think it's really important and we want everybody uh, on a Sunday to, to wrestle with you and with us and with the scriptures on that particular topic. That's um, right. Yeah, so stay tuned for Sunday. Uh, hopefully this is helpful and getting you thinking. Um, and keep praying that God, God by His Holy Spirit would just help you as you wrestle with Scripture and some of these ideas. That's right. We're looking forward to keeping the conversation going on Sunday. We'll see you then. See you then. Bye.